You're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Maniculum Podcast. I am Zoe, a professional game developer, and I'm here with Mac, my co-host, a PhD candidate at Purdue. And we are weird medievalists who teach you how to adapt weird medieval stories into TTRPGs. Today, we have two fabulous guests with us. But before we do that, I just wanted to run across a few new things. Don't forget, we have a wonderful, fantastic, growing Discord community. So if you want to get in touch with us directly, join the conversation, check out some cool TTRPG ideas. All of that stuff is on our Discord. You can find the link to that in our show notes. People post a lot of good art there. You can, you can check that out. That too. is so true. And like hand done, beautiful art. It's amazing. Just I'm a writer. I don't do the, the art. So I'm always blown away. We also have our other social media. We've got our Twitter, our Facebook. Tumblr. Oh, yes. Our Tumblr. That one's new. That one is new. We've got our Patreon as well. If you want to support the show and for the new year, we have some fantastic exciting new things coming out including exclusive bonus episodes bonus content fresh new ttrpg ideas that you can integrate into your ttrpg of choice all right but anyway all of that aside today we have two wonderful people with us we have dot and Lindsay from their podcast inside my favorite manuscript Dot is a special collections curator at the University of Pennsylvania with a background in digital humanities. Her main scholarly interest is in codex manuscript as physical objects, and she often engages in the fandom and community and blends those interests together, which is so cool. And also with us is her co-host, Lindsay, a lifelong nerd who is along for the ride. And today... They've brought a wonderful text for us, The Secrets of Women, which I'm excited to dig into. Am I allowed to hear this? The Secrets of Women? Ooh, good Can, point. Do, do I need to turn off my headphones? <laughs> you are in f- You will find out very quickly that you are, in fact, the intended audience uh, for The Secrets okay. of Women. This makes sense. Uh-huh. We're laying it all out. <laughs> Women have been crying out for millennia. <laughs> so, listeners, send this to your, I, I suppose non-women partners no. friends etc no, <laughs> no. no. <laughs> don't <laughs> from your tone and word choice i'm getting the vibes is this like a medieval pickup artist handbook or something it is not oh good <laughs> is it worse it's i don't know if it's worse or better because we're coming into this blind listeners yeah you are i was wondering if it was going to be something like andreas capellanus oh no no it's not it's not andreas capellanus although that would be that would be fun and interesting too but no (laughs) very different from andreas before we get into the text yes i wanted to welcome you both on hello hello Hi. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. And just for our listeners who perhaps are not as in the academy as Dot, you are, and Mac and I are as much, what the heck is the digital humanities? Because that sounds pretty counterintuitive. (laughs) And also, what is a codex manuscript? And what does it mean to study a codex manuscript as a physical object? 
as someone who has been in grad school for most of a decade, I would also like to know what exactly the digital platforms are. Oh, no. You're really asking me the hardest questions right at the start, aren't you? I mean, we gotta gotta throw you in. (laughs) And this isn't one that I anticipated. Gosh, digital humanities. So I guess I'll start by talking about myself, because why not? I actually have been in the field before it was even before it was called digital humanities. So I'm totally aging myself. I've been doing this for like 20 years. So I should be able to answer this question. At its most basic, at least at the start, I think it was you could say it's like applying technology to humanities, study and teaching and research, right? But like, everything is digital now. Like we're recording this on computers. And we're the, you know, Lindsay and I are going to be talking about this text, which we have created the shared Google document that we're both going to be looking at while we do that. So that's, of course, digital. So that's not it. Like, this isn't digital humanities. We're just doing we're just doing stuff. I like the sentence. That's not digital humanities. We're just doing stuff. I'm going to use that. You can quote me, put it on a T-shirt. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And like now I feel like. It's, you know, because technology keeps, it keeps going forward and it keeps changing. And now we have things like AI. So there's this whole thing about the chat GPT, I mm-hmm. think it, it is. Or, and there are people I see like on my Twitter, my DH Twitter side of the Twitter, who are really excited about this. And they're like, oh, this is great. Like, blah, blah, blah. And maybe that's digital humanities. Like maybe DH now is like grabbing that. I don't actually... You know, now what I would do is I work mainly with, well, with manuscripts because I'm this curator who works with manuscripts. So that's a lot of digital images. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The digitization itself, I wouldn't call like digital humanities. It's just digitization. Right. But you can do things with them that is sort of digital humanist work. So for example, any kind of project that's trying to use technology to read the manuscript, either to transcribe it or to actually make sense of what it's saying. And there are a lot of different ways to do this. And it takes a lot of sort of technical work like that's digital humanities now. So that is not a pithy definition. But I think I do think that these days digital humanities is more sort of complicated on the technology side. On the other hand, it is important, I think, to have a strong philosophical base to the DH and theoretical so and and critique Mm, so it's not just you know on one hand you might have people over here saying "Ooh, AI that's really cool let's do all this AI stuff then on the other hand you have people critiquing that and both of those things are digital humanities so it doesn't mean that you yourself are necessarily doing you know making software or even using software because it is a sort of a scholarly endeavor, the overall thing. Right. It's a it's a conversation, if you will. Yeah, I think it, ideally it is a conversation. So that's my long-winded <laughs> that's perfect. definition. One of the coolest ways that I've ever seen digital humanities used in a, I guess, manuscript slash medievalist way, which might ground this framework a little bit better for our listeners is Mm -hmm. I can't remember what the actual texts were, but it was this beautiful spiderweb map of women as connectors to different male writers in medieval England. 
Oh, very cool. And it, so it was not a not a map of England, but sort of just a mm. brain map of just referenced women. Like this guy's mm-hmm. wife connected that writer to a different writer. And the only mm-hmm. way that we have mention of that is through each one of their individual works where they just mention offhandedly like, oh yeah, this lady. And we can kind of infer that this is the same woman, either because she's named or her husband is named or whatever. And all of a sudden, all of these works that sort of appear in isolation are connected and we get a much better sense of how transmission occurred in medieval England, as well as communication of ideas, how these authors were connected and different things like that. And also, like, of course, it highlights just how important these women were in the generation and transmission of these different texts. So I think that's a really cool example of, I guess, using that kind of software mm-hmm. in manuscript and medieval work. And I know, I know that as medievalists, like I'm kind of a Luddite. I'm like, I don't know about all this stuff, <laughs> but it's a great tool to use to further the research of the field. So that's my little two cents on the digital humanities. <laughs> yes, I won't argue. And that sounds, that does sound like a really great project. Absolutely. Zoe, you were asking for definitions of things other than digital humanities earlier. What were they again? Codex manuscript. Oh, right. Codex manuscript. And like, what does it mean to study a manuscript or a codex manuscript as a physical object? Because I feel like a lot of people, when they come to history, they come to literature, it's like, oh, yes, mm-hmm. we read the book and we understand and we study the book and its content, but we're not thinking about that mm-hmm. as, as a physical object mm-hmm. with its own history. And Lindsay, of course, right. feel free to hop in whenever you like. Well, you mentioned being a Luddite when it comes to being a medievalist. Whatever is below a Luddite, that's where I'm at. Fair. You know, hey, you figured out (laughs) podcasting, so I feel like you're pretty you're pretty set out. You're pretty good. Yeah. So I I learn far more than I contribute. And so yeah, just go on ahead. Sounds good. Okay. All right. So a codex book is a book that is made, the central structure of it is sheets of some kind of writing surface in remediable manuscripts, that's parchment and a little bit later paper, stacked in stacks of three or four or five or six or sometimes more, and folded to make a booklet. The booklets are usually called gatherings or choirs. I call them choirs just because that's the word that I use. And then several choirs are sewn together to make a bunch of pages, which is called a text block because it's like a block of, of, and I know that there's like, when you get into printing, you get words that are sort of used over. And I think text block is a word that's actually used in a different way in printing. But in manuscript, you're talking about this block of the actual pages. And then that is put into some kind of binding either a hard binding that has, you know, leather and maybe wooden boards or a soft binding that's just made of parchment. And that is your book. So it looks very similar to the books that we read today. But the structure is that every page is almost every page is attached to another page. Because one of the really interesting things about studying these is that you don't always have what you call regular choirs. So it's not always that you have like, here's a choir of eight leaves, which would be four, you know, four sheets folded. And then here's a choir of 10 and here's a choir of 12. Sometimes you have choir of seven. Oh, yeah. Because a leaf was maybe added later or a leaf has been cut out. And so a lot of the work, I actually have a project right now at Penn 
where I am building, it's digital humanities, I'm building collation models of all of, we're trying to do all of the manuscripts in our collection, at least all of the ones that we can, a collation then being the description of how the leaves are put together, how the choirs are put together. Very cool. Yeah. And so I have this project called VizCall, which I've been co-director of for many years. And that's all about making models of the structure and also mapping things like the contents, like the textual contents and the illustrations of their illustrations and seeing basically what it can tell you. And this is this is the second part of that question is how do you study them? Usually, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like a lot of people think that books are for reading the text out of. And in fact, Lindsay, not too long ago was like, do you ever read these books? And I was like, no, I don't actually. (laughs) And she meant read the text. And of course, I work in a library that has, we have hundreds of manuscripts and I look at several of them a week and I, I don't read them. I read though, the physicality of them, which can tell you a lot. It can tell you how much it was used over time. You know, if you have a very old manuscript that isn't dirty and it hasn't been written on, that implies that not a lot of people used it. And if you have an old manuscript that's very messy and dirty and has lots of, you know, writing in the margins and and lots of dirt around the edges, that implies that that was a book that was used a lot. And that is an interesting thing that you actually don't get if somebody transcribed the text and you're looking at the text, like there's no sense of that. So that is basically those two things. Does that? Yes, that is perfect. <laughs> Good. I've actually gotten the same response when I mentioned some of some of my favorite manuscripts. And mm-hmm. like, I was like, oh, yeah, I love the Rutland Psalter. Someone's like, well, what's it about? It's a Psalter. The text isn't important. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. You read one, exactly. you read them all. Yeah. <laughs> what's happening around it is what's interesting. Yeah. Yes. Like, also, the stories, you know, even further around it, like who owned it yeah. and why? Like, why was it made? Where did it go? We recently had on our podcast, it hasn't come out yet. I don't know when this will come out, so I don't know when this will, but... If it has, we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> okay. So Brandon Hawk came on and he talked about a manuscript called the Richelli book. And it's called the Richelli book because it's in Richelli, which is in Italy. But it's one of the four surviving manuscripts that are fully Old English poetry. Yeah, I'm very familiar with this one. Yeah. And so the story of that, like, why is this? This is the big question that actually I had for him is like, why the heck is this Old English manuscript in Vercelli? And so I'm not going to give it away. You got to listen to the episode to find out. We'll definitely put that in the show notes for (laughs) sure. No, but that was really interesting. And again, you wouldn't, if you're just reading it, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't know. Yep. I mean, except that the name of it is the, the Vercelli book. You'd probably guess, but, you know, maybe not. Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite puzzles, and that, that's the thing that I really like about studying manuscripts themselves, is that it is sort of like your own little treasure hunt of mm-hmm. understanding through these little hints and tricks, like what came before this, who used it, all that good stuff. So maybe a, a cool hint or puzzle for DMs out there is to, instead of just having like, you know, 
cool runes on a wall or something, use a text, use a book where the actual writing of the text doesn't matter, but the marginalia does, where it came from does. Why is it in this particular library? Or if it's not in a library, where is it? And why does that matter? It's like in video games, when you find somebody's journal next to a dead body, you open up that book and you expect to understand like, oh, you read his journal and you understand, okay, he's talking about shipments going missing. Okay, he's going to go into this cave. Oh, it suddenly ends with a lot of bloodstains in the journal. And then you as the player understand, oh, there's probably spiders up ahead or whatever. (laughs) And you sort of get this little quest, you get this little side history out of this textual object. So I would encourage you DMs, players listening to incorporate that into your own worlds. And that's something that we directly can get from manuscript studies and digital humanities. So I think that's super cool. Mm -hmm. I do like the idea of having a, a book in either a tabletop game or a video game that the text is something the players are already familiar with. The interesting thing is like the notes the previous owner mm-hmm. made. Kind of makes me think of the the movie Heathers with that copy of, I think it was Moby Dick that they underlined in. That oh, might be yeah. a reference a little too old for some of our audience. <laughs> but we are 20 minutes in, so we should probably get to the text. That you yes, made. absolutely. Shall we go? Yes, elucidate us all the secrets of women. Oh. <laughs> all right. So... The text that we're going to be talking about is De Secretis Mulierum, On the Secrets of Women. And I need to start it by saying that, as we've already sort of talked about during the first part of the podcast, I am not an expert in this text. I know a lot about manuscripts. And in fact, the reason that I know this text is because Penn has a copy of this text in a manuscript in our collection. And last year, I have this weekly zoom event called coffee with a codex where every week for about 30 minutes i take a manuscript off the shelf and have this zoom call and show show the manuscript off do a little show and tell and in fact i don't spill coffee on it we are not allowed (laughs) to have coffee in the room so the coffee in a codex is i expect the people on the other side of the screens are the ones drinking your own i've had coffee before bring your own coffee and i don't usually read the text like I don't read the texts before I bring them out it's usually just I have the record and I talk about it and we look at the text we don't really read it but this one there was something about the title that I thought well, what is this what is on the secrets of women like I had to read it and so I discovered that there is a translation along with a, an extensive introduction it was published in 1992 so this is what we're going to be talking about really is from this 1992 publication the title of it is Women's Secrets, a translation of Pseudo-Albertus Magnus's De Secretis Mulierum with Commentaries by Helen Rodnight LeMay, published by SUNY Press, 1992. So everything is, is from that. So that was obviously 21 years ago. There's probably been a lot of work done on it. I apologize if this is out of date. But the text itself, I think, is the same. The text hasn't changed in 20, 21 years. So a little bit of background. So... On the Secrets of Women, it was written in the late 13th or the early 14th century. It was clearly inspired by Albertus Magnus. The author sort of says this. For a time, it was believed to actually have been authored by him, but it wasn't. So pseudo-Albertus, maybe somebody pretending to be Albertus. The author remains unknown. We don't actually know who exactly wrote it. However, from the prologue, which I will read to you, in a moment. It is at least claiming to be written by a monk for other monks. So this is like, hey, guys, 
Do you know about women? Let me tell you. I would imagine that neither the writer nor the audience know about women if they're monks. No. Or at least they're not supposed to. And there's a lot of interesting, there's actually a lot of, and I wish we had more time, but we'll go over it. We'll try to get like, get the best parts, but like, there's a lot of stuff in here. That's like, like what? Out of pocket. <laughs> you can fly. Out of pocket. He, he does quote a lot. And he even says this, he says, this is natural philosophy and medicine. So natural philosophy is sort of an early version of natural science, almost. It's like, what can you see? What can you perceive? And sort of taking the world at sort of at face value like that. And then there's medicine, which is more about diagnosis and treatment of things. So he's he's trying to be as scientific as possible here. He is, but he's mostly, it's mostly not from stuff that he has seen. He is quoting people and he's talking to people. So he quotes a lot. He quotes Aristotle. He quotes Avicenna, who was, um, you know, medical Arabic medicine and also Averroes. So he's sort of trying to be scholarly. He also, in at least one point, he talks about having talked to midwives, though. So there's also... Which is which is really interesting, because on one hand, he's like, I am being very, you know, scholarly. And here is Aristotle. Here's what Aristotle says. And then he's like, so I was talking to this lady and she was telling me about, you know, other ladies. So it's sort of this weird combination of like of things. Honestly, I'm glad the midwife part is in there because I was going to be really concerned. This whole thing was, hi, guys, I've learned about women from books. And since none of us ever (laughs) talked to them, let me explain it to you. Yeah. Well, at least, I mean, he's talking to, uh, there's no indication that he himself is actually touching women, you know, so it's not like firsthand, it's all like secondhand and like, here's what my buddy told me, here's what this lady told me. So that's interesting. So I had never, I hadn't heard of this text before this, you know, I started looking at it for this event, but it was actually hugely popular. So it survives in at least 83 manuscripts. That's um, and there are so, that's a lot, and there are also different sort of textual traditions. So it's not exactly the same in each manuscript, and this is actually really common. Like texts got copied and copied and copied and recopied, and people added things and took things out. This translation is from a specific printed edition from Leon in 1580. So yes, this text was also printed. There were over 50 printed editions in the 15th century and over 70 in the 16th century. So this was a text that was popular from the 12th century all the way up through the 16th century and probably beyond. For some perspective, I just looked this up to verify I was correct. That is about the same number of surviving manuscripts of the Canterbury Tales. So this was an extremely popular text. Yeah, it was extremely popular. It is, before we get into it, I mean, obviously, it's being written by a man, by a monk in this particular time. It is misogynistic, quite. There's a lot of things. He's, he's scientifically wrong. And there's also like things about harlots and women <laughs> wanting to have lots of sex. So which is presented as being a bad thing, right? So, you know, there's. We're very familiar with seeing this in a lot of the texts we cover. So yeah. Not that yeah. we're excusing any sort of misogyny no. or slut shaming, but no, like, no, no, that's, no. that's going to be in all the medieval. Oh, books. yeah. Oh, yeah. It is what's there. So feel free to skip any later disclaimers because our audience is very familiar. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Very good. So it consists of 13 chapters that are sort of interesting. So I'll just read through the chapter titles and then we'll go actually into the chapters. So the chapters are one on the generation of the embryo. 
2. On the formation of the fetus. 3. Concerning the influence of the planets. 4. On the generation of imperfect animals. 5. On the exit of the fetus from the uterus. 6. Concerning monsters in nature. 7. On the signs of conception. 8. On the signs of whether a male or female is in the uterus. 9. On the signs of corruption of virginity. Oh, Lord. 10. On the signs of chastity. Yeah, great, right? 11. Concerning the a defect of the womb. 12. Concerning impediments to conception. And 13. The last chapter on the generation of the sperm. So this is like a lot of midwife's knowledge, basically. With a diversion into astrology and that weird bit about chastity. I wouldn't say this is about a midwife. (laughs) (laughs) From reading the titles, you would think that. But then you actually read the chapters and you're like, hmm, I don't know. So I'm going to very quickly read the preface. And then, Lindsay, are you going to take chapter one? Sure, I'll take chapter one. Okay. So the preface is where it's sort of contextualized as by man for man. So this is just the first part. To my dear companion and friend in Christ, may you be granted a long life filled with increasing wisdom. Since you asked me to bring to light certain hidden, secret things about the nature of women, I have set myself to the task of composing this short and compendious treatise. I have done this despite the youthful frailty of my mind, so maybe he's a young guy, I don't know, which tends to be attracted to frivolous things. (laughs) (laughs) Its style is partly philosophical, partly medical, just as seems to fit the material. This is a serious work, therefore I beg you not to permit any child to peruse it, nor anyone of childlike disposition. That seems like a fair warning. Right? Like, don't read it to kids. It's not bedtime material. PG-13. If you keep this book to yourself, I promise to show you many things about different subjects, as well as about the art of medicine, which, God willing, I shall discuss at some length. And then he actually doesn't. There's actually very little medicine in the book, but that's okay. Well, it did say he was distracted by frivolous things. He did. It did. And then the rest of the preface sort of goes on to talk about the importance of human generation, which is like people making babies, which women obviously play a huge role in. So I guess it makes sense that he would be mentioning that in the preface. This is also where he first starts to quote like Aristotle, like in the next sentence, literally, he's like an an Aristotle said, an Abichena said, you know, so he's like setting himself up as like knowledgeable guy. And then he goes on to the generation of the embryo. And what does he have to say about that, Lindsay? (laughs) Let's go. He has an awful lot to say about it, but he's mostly talking about menstruation <laughs> and not the actual yeah. generation of the embryo. Now, I'm, I'm not an expert, but those are <laughs> mutually exclusive, aren't they? You can't do both at once. This is correct. Mm-hmm. He did not know this. <laughs> <laughs> and he makes it very, very clear. A quote, let's see, the most interesting thing that we learned from reading this chapter is that menstrual blood is, in fact, excess food. Mm -hmm. Hmm. According to the four humors, blood is the result of digestion. So if you need to see how he got there, because don't Mm -hmm. you stop if you don't eat enough? Yes, you do. Exactly. Excess food makes sense because it would explain why malnourished women don't menstruate, although the author doesn't actually mention it. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. This text just makes me giggle. 
inside and out. <laughs> I mean, it's a ridiculous, it's a ridiculous text. I, I kind of feel bad ridiculous. for our author because it feels like he's making a really like good faith attempt here, but mm-hmm. he's getting he, so much wrong. Yes, he does. The third question that is addressed in this, I'm going to read a bit from the actual text. The third question is why menzies, which are superfluous food, flow in women, and sperm does not flow in men, for this is also superfluous food. To this I reply that woman is cold and humid by nature, whereas man is hot and dry. Now humid things naturally flow, as we see in the fourth book of the meteorology, and this is especially true of that humid substance which is in women, for it is watery. In men, on the other hand, the humid substance resembles air. And further, man has natural heat. Because it's cloudy? This heat acts on the humid. (laughs) Sorry, I just... (laughs) Since nature never does anything in vain, as it is noted in the first book on heaven and earth, and because the heat in women is weaker than that in men, and all their food cannot be converted into flesh, nature takes the best course. It's logic. She provides for what is necessary and leaves the excess in the place where the menzies are kept. Enough has been said on this subject, for to go into <laughs> more detail would be to give more than the subject demands. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, his own internal logic makes sense, but this feels like one of those, like, why can't you just hold your period in? Like, arguments. <laughs> because you're too humid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're too humid. It's so interesting because it's, cl- I mean, it's clearly like the humors. He's all into like the the theory of the, or the, you know, I get, he wouldn't say it's a theory, but like the humors and the cold and wet and hot and dry mm-hmm. and it's all there. And, you know, and this also, I mean, this becomes clear also later in the thing. In fact, next is formation of the fetus, which I will say a little bit about. So as with the first chapter, which is ostensibly about the generation of the embryo, but is actually about menstruation. The second chapter on the formation of the fetus starts out with sort of a creative description of how the baby is made in the womb, which maybe I'll read. Lego. There. (laughs) What did he say? Lego. Lego. It's a little bit like that. But then it jumps immediately into astrology. Wow. So, yeah, so... It starts out well, before see. before you jump into this, I am very yeah. curious to see whether it talks about when the soul is sort of attached, if you will, to the fetus, because in some of our previous texts that we've discussed, actually, I think it was actually an Advent sermon where the priest was like, oh, yeah, Jesus was like the first most human because he had a soul at conception which also means he was the shortest human i love that they did say that which was (laughs) the most bizarre thing but it makes it makes an argument for the human soul not being attached to the fetus until Mm -hmm. about four weeks out so i'm very interested to see what he what he says here uh, about that if anything I kind of want to do a uh, a comparative between this and what Hildegard has to say about this about the same subject. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I'm sure she's working with similar material, but I bet she has a different take. Probably. Anyway, yeah. So I'm looking through the full text of this chapter, and what I'm seeing is that 
what he's mostly talking about is in the like so for example in the sixth month the influence and reign of mercury form the instrument of the voice compose the eyebrows and eyes and make hair and nails grow it's like every month there is a different planet that is causing something to happen as the baby is growing with the implication i think that if something happens during that month it will affect this part of the fetus's body i can see how that would tie into astrology then because then if like okay so in the sixth month you were pregnant mercury mercury was in retrograde so that obviously screwed up yeah. that part of the fetus's development right yeah and this this actually plays into medieval medicine because one of the things that medieval doctors would do as part of their diagnosis is they would figure out your star chart like when you were born the zodiac was like it was a major part of how how medicine was done and in fact in this same chapter after they go through the nine months of gestation and which you know planet dominates and how it influences what's happening he actually goes through and describes the signs of the zodiac and how they impact different parts of the body, which in pictorial form is what we call the zodiac man. Ah, uh, yes. And the zodiac man is actually a really common thing that you see in medical manuscripts where it's like the, a human form sort of standing with the different zodiacal lo not logos. <laughs> Sigils, <laughs> you know, there, signs. <laughs> you know, there's signs like over the different parts of the body. And the first time I read this, I was like, holy wow, look, I didn't swear. That's Zodiac <laughs> Man. So I thought that was that was pretty neat. But that's essentially what, when they're talking about the formation of the fetus, it's really about, it's not like the medical stuff about like, here's what's happening. It's like, here's what the planets are doing, how it's affecting the growth of the fetus. We read a story this Nothing past about the fall soul. where one <laughs> plot point was parents trying to have a baby at a strategic moment when the zodiac was exactly mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. yeah and that was that was a french story i think so apparently this was pretty widespread yeah yeah i think it was that sounds pretty yeah <laughs> <laughs> believable it was set in in byzantium but it was written right. in french yeah so the third chapter is sort of more it's concerning the influence of the planets so it's more of that, more of the same, I think. Lindsay, did you want to say anything particular or read anything? Well, in the first chapter, the first time that they mention the soul is during the fourth month. Oh. Oh, I missed that. Yes. It says, in the fourth month, the sun exercises its power, impresses forms, creates the heart, and gives movement to the sensitive soul. Interesting. Oh, interesting. And the author goes on to say, this is in accordance with the statements of medical authorities and certain astronomers, but if we believe Aristotle, the heart is the first part of the body to be generated and all other members derive from it. Hmm. I kind of like the idea that medical authorities says that at the four-month stage, the son gives the baby a soul. <laughs> yes. We've tested. <laughs> We tested that and we, we can know that confirm. <laughs> Wild. That's interesting. So to me, there's a little question there of like, okay, what is the movement of the soul? Like it does, does the soul exist or does it actually like start making the baby move at that point? And this is very interesting to me because in terms of abortive measures, what was permitted at different points in a woman's pregnancy like when was that allowed because a lot of 
people nowadays, Christians nowadays say like, oh, well, life begins at conception. But historically, that is not what the church has argued. So it's very interesting to mm-hmm. me to see and understand what different authorities, finger quotes there, have said on this matter throughout history. So that's very fascinating mm-hmm. to me. I've noticed in a lot yeah. of medical manuals, they kind of, they describe ab- like abortive herbs and stuff. They do so through a layer of euphemism. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. not really clear mm-hmm. if the male author knows what he's talking about, or if he's just writing mm-hmm. down something he heard from a midwife and he's talking about, quote, women's problems. Yeah. Unquote. <laughs> so I, I feel like a lot of those decisions would have been made unofficially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that where the author here gets closest to talking about abortion is in chapter five, which is on the exit of the fetus from the uterus. And again, it's sort of interesting because the chapter starts out not talking about the baby coming out, but talking about more of the influence of the stars (laughs) and whatnot on there. So you make it through that. And then we get to the point of it, which is the fetus leaves the uterus most frequently in the ninth month, but sometimes is born in the eighth and sometimes in the 10th or 11th month, but not later than this. So that's actually, yeah, like that's very accurate about right. To be fair, that's that one's not hard to test experimentally. You just have to <laughs> no, <laughs> you just got to be able to see. I think that's a good point. Like he, he could see this like, you know. Some women habitually, habitually give birth in the sixth month and abortively, for they do not produce something with the nature of a man, but rather a certain fleshy and milky matter. So is this saying like some women are prone to miscarry? I believe that that's what this is saying. And Lindsay is nodding too, so I think, yeah. This can happen for a variety of reasons, either because the matter of the menses is corrupt, or because of too much motion on the part of the woman which breaks the womb, or on account of other evils that befall her. For this reason, harlots and women learned in the art of midwifery engage in a good deal of activity when they are pregnant. They move from place to place, from town to town. They lead dances and take part in many other evil deeds. Even more frequently, they have a great deal of sex and they wrestle with men. (laughs) Why does it always wrestle? (laughs) They always use this word. They do all of these things so that they might be freed from their pregnancy by the excessive motion. The reason for their great desire for coitus is that the pleasure that they experience will help them blot out the grief that they feel from the destruction of the fetus. Oh my gosh, that is so cruel. It's dark. It's cruel and it's awful, but it also doesn't say that they're murdering a baby. That's true. Which That's is, true. You know, like it's not like it's awful and it's clearly like seen as like a bad thing. But I don't know. It doesn't feel it. He's clearly like judging them. But he's not calling them murderers. Yeah. I yeah. don't know why why it was harlots and midwives. Like, why are we putting midwives in there? Is it just because, like, they're, they're women who live independently and he's lumping them into the same category? I don't know. That is a good question. Man. See, and I was so excited because at, at the start of all this, he's like, oh, yeah, it could just be some corruption of the men's. He's like, okay, you have a physical problem there. Or it could be or... those harlots dancing too much. Well, and then he goes, and then he goes, oh, it could be like excessive like work or action. I was like, oh, cool. He's not actually blaming the woman. And then he immediately is like, so obviously, mm-hmm. oh, that's a shame. Yeah. I took that passage about those learned in the art of midwifery to mean, oh, they know all the cheats. Yep. Uh, yep. Oh, that, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And this is also the chapter where he talks about, it is kind of funny because at that part, he's like, oh, these midwives, they're so bad. 
But then at the end of the chapter, this is where he is talking about childbirth. And he says, here are the things that the midwives do. So in these cases, when a baby is breached, basically, in these cases, the midwives carefully thrust back the hand or feet. And this causes great pain, weakening many women and causing death, except to the very strong. Sometimes in childbirth, there's, I'm not going to read that because that is, sounds very painful. But again, like the midwife does something. And then he says, I have heard from many women that when the fetus presents the head during birth and the operation goes well, and the other members follow easily. So I have heard from many women. This is where he's like, I've been talking. Mm -hmm. And that's how I know this stuff, which is, it's just interesting to me that, you know, I've been talking to these women and most of them are evil, but (laughs) but some of them know stuff, you know? Very interesting. I'm surprised many women were willing to talk to a monk about gynecological matters. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it makes you wonder how he, how he did that. So, hey, I'm doing this research project. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which way was the baby facing? Tell me. Yeah. 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 Cool. I'm a little bit. Okay, like Secrets of Women, I get that a lot of this has to do with childbirth, but I'm a little surprised he hasn't touched on, like, sex at all so far. There's some sex later. Oh, okay. Shall we go into the sex chapters? Okay, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Because we do have the chapters on on the signs of conception, corruption of virginity and chastity. Oh, yes, that's right. We just hadn't gotten to those. Yeah. So if we look at, there were a couple in chapter seven on the signs of conception. Lindsay, did you want to read these? (laughs) I just pulled out some of my favorites. Uh, Yeah, let me scroll down to where that is. So welcome to the show. (laughs) We're going to make you read really uncomfortable things. (laughs) I mean, I can read it, but I've been talking a lot, so I thought you might like to read it. It's totally fine. I just need to get to where we are. There it is, chapter seven on the signs of conception. Okay, so here's from the text. We have sufficiently treated the generation and formation of the fetus and how this is accomplished, and many other incidental matters. In order to complete our topic, we must note the signs of conception in a woman, which are many. The first sign is evident by the sexual act. If a woman feels cold and has pain in her legs immediately after coitus with a man, this is a sign that she has conceived. I haven't heard that before. Confirm? Deny? <laughs> I haven't heard that either. Mm, I, I don't... Neither confirm don't nor deny. <laughs> I don't think that's a thing. I think that just probably means you, you hurt her a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> then, oh lord. <laughs> Sorry. It's quite alright. Another sign of conception is if the man feels his penis drawn and sucked into the closure of the vulva. And my personal theory is that this is the rarest of all. <laughs> yes, because that indicates that she's orgasming. That she's actually yeah. enjoying <laughs> it. <laughs> I like how we all understood that immediately. <laughs> and it took Mac a second. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> that's, that's the science, I guess, or the physicality behind this is like the orgasm is like the clenching of the muscles there, which can mm-hmm. draw in the... Yeah the penis yes another sign is if the woman after coitus continually wants to have more however this sign is valid only in certain women because (laughs) others desire to have more even when they have not conceived as was seen above in one question yeah 
And finally, the woman also knows that she has conceived if after coitus the menstrual period does not arrive in its accustomed way and there is a titillation in the mouth of the womb. Well, they had me in the first half. Yeah. <laughs> there <laughs> is, the there half, is an actual like... fact in this book. <laughs> I know. There's one. Amazing. <laughs> I love it. They don't really get into the mechanics of sex other than to tell you how to do it if you want to ensure you're having a male or a female child, which Dot, I will let you read all about for us. Oh, you're going to let me read that? Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad you can choose. I'm going to assume that that's because it's written for monks. So it's like, if you don't already know the mechanics, I'm not going to explain it. <laughs> you're not supposed to do it anyway. Yeah, yeah. Oh, on the signs on the corruption of virginity. Yes. Is, yes, is chapter nine. There and we this go. is, the whole chapter is very short. And I'm going to, I'm going to, there's a whole chapter. Now let us take note of the signs of corruption of chastity. Sometimes virgins are gravely corrupted so that their vagina is greatly enlarged because the male member is exceedingly large and inept. When this happens, the vagina <laughs> becomes so widened that the man can enter there without any pain to his member. And this is a sign that the woman was first corrupted. Yes, she did say inept. She, yes, inept was the word. Okay, I'm going to need uh, y'all to explain this to me. <laughs> I mean, I feel like if there's pain upon entry, the woman is probably not ready. Yeah, yeah. I think that this is just, he just doesn't... I think it's like a game of telephone. I feel like somebody told him something that they heard from someone else and something was missed in the translation and it's just sort of, you know, uh, written down because I just don't understand that at all. It's almost like, oh, if she's actually like ready for you and she says it's her first time, she's lying. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the implication I'm getting. That does actually kind of track. Like not with reality, with right? Obviously, but with but with the text, it reads yeah. to me as though it's like, okay, she may be a virgin, but she's clearly messed around, and mm -hmm. yeah, and so it's right. problematic any then, way you read it. Yes, it's yeah. it's it's in some way they are blaming her for making him inept. Inept in my mind. <laughs> wow, that's yeah. what I'd like to believe. Yeah. And then in the next paragraph, so there's the second paragraph of this two paragraph chapter, is when they talk about pain, that the woman has pain during her first time, because there is a certain skin in the vagina and the bladder, which is broken. But the more they have sex, the more they become accustomed to it, which again is sort of like, I don't know. That's not how that works. Like, not really. And for the record, this is referring to the hymen, which some women yes. are born without one. Some like, mm -hmm. and it's a, it's a very slim membrane regardless, and it can break in a variety of ways. And there are still places, I think Malaysia is one of them where there are like inspections for women Ew. to try and make sure that that's there. And you can get in major trouble if it's been broken, even if right. you're a virgin and have never had sex. So this is still pervasive mm -hmm. to this day in different areas. So, and clearly it was a thing for our friend of the month yeah. who wrote the two. You know, I'm glad that chapter is only two paragraphs. <laughs> Me too. Me too. That's basically the gist of what, like it's all, there's all more of that. We could keep going. I feel like there are certain circles in which that chapter you just read would basically still be accepted as true. Mm -hmm. Oh, 100%. 
Yeah, yeah. There are other parts, too. There's the chapter eight, which is on the signs of whether a male or female is in the uterus. These are still the kinds of things that you'll hear today, like a sign of a male is if the abdomen protrudes on the right and if it is rounded. Yeah. Like how like how many times have you heard, well, if you carry it high, it's a girl. If it's low, it's a boy. Yeah. You know, exactly the same kinds of, of thinking. Although today we would probably not say a further sign of a male is when the milk that flows from the woman's breasts is thick and well digested, such that if placed on a surface that has been well cleaned, it does not separate, but rather the parts adhere to one another instead of spreading apart. So that's a little bit. Who is doing this little experiment? <laughs> <laughs> there are so many little experiments like that in this book. To be to be fair there, I feel like that's something that a midwife would would do because a lot of women would want to have a son or, you know, perhaps a daughter, but typically a son. And so I feel like a lot of those things are are less about oh, let's do this ridiculous experiment blah blah blah, but more something that the pregnant woman and the midwife would actually almost desperately want to do yeah that's actually a good point and that's a good question of where he got these from because he's clearly he's not only drawing from like aristotle and avicenna he's also talking to seemingly like talking to people maybe not in his community but you know out locally somewhere he is yeah and so where is he because he's not citing these like who knows where he's getting them yeah from. yeah that's really interesting hmm okay Shall we continue on to our segments? I feel like that'll be an interesting little exercise. I feel like most of them don't apply. I would agree, but I'm interested to see how we can come up with ways to adapt this into a, a TTRPG. Well, there is the... They do address infertility in this text. Oh. And they give some examples of how you might find out whether it is the woman or the man's fault. <laughs> honestly that's more progressive than a lot of medieval texts which would just say it's the woman's fault well it mm -hmm. says that in a lot of places but in this particular <laughs> paragraph it involves wheat bran and a tree frog could you I love explain this. that or I you love just want to leave it there <laughs> this, this is the noodle incident i'll read this Paragraph. If you wish to know whether the man or the woman is the cause of infertility, take two pots and place the man's urine in one and the woman's in the other. Oh no. Add wheat bran to each of them and carefully close up the pots for nine days or longer. If the defect is in the man, there will be worms in his pot. Or if you put a cooking pot on top of the container of urine, you will find a fetid tree frog or a fetid bran. If the fault is the woman's, Menzies will be found in her pot. If both are to blame, something of the aforementioned is found in each pot. That's interesting in a couple different ways. I feel like this is, this might be another telephone thing, because I remember hearing that in like the ancient Mediterranean world, there was a pregnancy test where a woman would pee on grain, and if it sprouted it meant she was oh. pregnant. Oh. Apparently, this this actually has like a sixty percent success rate. People tested it. There's there's something there. Oh wow! Oh wow! I, I may be reporting it wrong, but it's it's something like that. Mm -hmm. But it seems like it's it's gotten tangled up in the concept of spontaneous generation. And so instead mm -hmm. of like, does the grain sprout? It's does the grain make frogs? Or <laughs> right. And in fact, spontaneous. We didn't really get to it, but there he does talk a lot about 
in the in the animal chapter he talks about spontaneous generation of animals and that's one way that animals are different from humans because humans have to gestate in the womb and animals some animals can just pop up pop up out of nowhere mm-hmm. so yeah dang fast i feel like that pregnancy test sort of benefits the woman a little better because i feel like it would be very i don't know how you'd get menses to appear Maybe if the water is impure and it looks kind of reddish, they could go like, "Ah, oh, that's." Yeah, I was thinking some cor- some sort of um like parasite in the wheat because that, like that can happen. Algae. Yeah, just mold. There are red molds. That's true. Interesting. Okay. Well, let's see what we can actually come up with. I think that the the, the fertility test could be something that could go in there if you have like some aristocrats or royals who are anxious for an heir. I feel like you can definitely play around with that. I also feel like there's a lot of this astrology stuff that could be very interesting mm-hmm. for a particular backstory, mm-hmm. depending on like what month you're born in, like what happens with the planets or things like that. You could tie into a backstory or either strengths or flaws of your particular character it might be like oh well you know like i was born under you know a mercury sky or whatever you could definitely tie that in you could make a whole like a alternate character creation system based on the zodiac man (gasps) oh my god that's kind of what i was thinking actually like you have to pick a birthday and roll like depending on what your birthday is when you roll the dice the numbers mean you know if you're hit in the head and you happen to be in a month, you know, born in a month where your head was particularly protected or not, you know, that might affect the- Might have a higher yeah. intelligence stat versus constitution. Or your body parts are, you have super strengths. Oh, there like, you go. For instance, Sagittarius is mm-hmm. responsible for the nose, the bowels, and the anus. So... I know, Definitely right? constitution buff. And, yeah. I'm slightly <laughs> fascinated by the idea of any kind of character creation system that could result in a character having a strong anus. <laughs> it might come in handy. You never know. <laughs> hey, you know, if anybody can make it work, it's TTRPG players. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, let's see. Anything else? I mean, most of our segments don't apply, so we won't we won't do a lot of them. Yeah. But um, any terminology that might be interesting for players to use? Anything interesting that popped up in the text in terms of terminology? I still think you could have an entire NPC who's like a monk who's like, oh, oh, I just wrote this awesome little treatise about the secrets of women. And literally everyone's <laughs> like, what are you talking about? You're a monk. I think that would be a fantastic NPC. That would be. Of course, please, listeners, take this all with a grain of salt. Please, unless you have your player's consent, don't include these misogynistic ideas in your game unless your players want to deal with that as a theme. Just take that all with a grain of salt. But I think he'd be really funny as a a comedic character. I'm blanking on ideas for terminology. This is a weird text. (laughs) This one's a weird it's one a to weird. try and adapt. <laughs> it's a weird one. I mean, you'd almost, I mean, I don't even, I don't even know. You'd almost have to build a thing just around, mm-hmm. around it in some mm-hmm. way. Like just including it. I don't know how, if it would fit in most, in most places. Just because of the, I mean, the topic is. It's just bizarre. Probably not something a lot of game, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. game, game people want to. Now, okay, to play with this with a previous idea. 
I think one of us came up with the idea of a blood witch who gets more power during her menses. And so maybe you could tie this into having like a, the secret book of women and tie that to the class mm-hmm. of the blood witch. But I, I don't know. That's that's the only other thing I'm thinking of. But yeah, that's, that's what I've got. Yeah. Yeah. I think we might have to come back to this text at some other point because this this like tasting has gotten me interested in it <laughs> definitely maybe, maybe that's in, very neat maybe in future leeches yeah. corner segments yeah definitely yeah definitely yeah well there's that that 92 translation and it's worth reading and i didn't i didn't even mention it but the translation comes with two commentaries we didn't even talk about the commentaries like the whole commentary tradition there were lots of people were reading this and commenting on it and you know so there's i think there'd be a lot to to dig into were, were any of the comments yeah. saying like this is clearly nonsense? Not really. Of course, not that I saw. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, when you're basing stuff on Aristotle, who's been quote unquote the authority for so long, right? You know, right. I, I really feel like this this book has vibes like it came from the medieval equivalent of those weird corners of Reddit where yeah. some guy is <laughs> oh, yeah. like, "Let me tell you about the hymen," and other guys are like, "Yeah, man, that's totally out." <laughs> I probably probably nobody ever told him he was wrong yeah Yeah. oh yeah they were all like well this sounds legit okay sure yeah why would we ever check with the women in our lives well they don't have any women in their lives they're monks well yeah but like this was a popular text so you know someone with a wife probably read it that's fair Okay. All right. So we will close out on on this very strange note. We hope you've enjoyed learning the secrets of women and I guess more about astrology than women. But you know, sometimes it's like that. Dot, Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us and teaching us all about this and about manuscripts in general. And uh, Mac and I will be guesting on their podcast as well. So please do check that out. Dot Lindsay, where can people find you and check out your stuff? The best place to go is our Tumblr, which is inside my favorite manuscript, all one word.tumblr.com. And from there, you can see all the information about the podcast. You can read all about episodes we've had and upcoming episodes, and you can find out where to listen. Perfect. Uh, and we will put that in our show notes so you can find that directly. Highly recommended since they include images of the like manuscripts and manuscript yes. pages they mention, yes. which makes the the podcast itself more of a multimedia experience. Yeah, follow if do, along. If you have them both open at once. Definitely. Good. All right. So thank you so much, Dot and Lindsay, for joining us. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. And don't forget, the best way to get involved with us is directly through our Discord and our Patreon. That said, we do have our other social or just, media. Like, emailing us. Yeah, or just email us. We have that on our site. Feel free. People like, there have are lots used of it. ways to get in touch with us. Yeah, we're available. We're out there. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram, Facebook. And we love hearing from you guys. So with that said, have a wonderful day and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. 
If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, check out our blog on themaniculumpodcast.com. And hey, come get involved in our community. We have a Discord group that you can join, and you can find links to our server on our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, our Twitter, at Maniculum, and our Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. Original music by Walker. Check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. 